This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. Today, a man who overdosed on vitamin supplements. How to identify a life-threatening condition with really vague symptoms. And back in 2009, Australia launched a national preventative health strategy with a lofty goal to be the healthiest country in the world by 2020. Well, none of us back then could have imagined the health crisis we'd all be dealing with in 2020, but the strategy focused on three particular areas, tobacco use, alcohol use, and obesity. On tobacco, we've done pretty well. Alcohol, we're improving, but slowly. But obesity has gone in the other direction, according to figures released last week by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. In 1995, about one in five Australians was obese. Now that's just under one in three. So what actually works when it comes to obesity? Let's ask an expert. Here's Jane Martin from the Obesity Policy Coalition. Hi, Jane. Hi, Tegan. So obesity is often framed as an issue of individual responsibility, that people should simply choose to be healthier and that will make them lose weight. Is this the right approach? No, the causes of weight gain are complex and there's a range of issues um, in our society which impact on what we eat and, you know, weight stigma um, and blaming people is, you know, can exacerbate weight gain and lead to physical health consequences, including people avoiding health care. So it's really important that we don't blame individuals and that we look to the other reasons in our society and our community that are shaping what we eat and how much physical activity we do. Right. So BMI as a measure at an individual level is really fraught. It's a blunt instrument at best. But at a population level, it's useful as a public health issue because there are links at a population level between higher weights and chronic diseases like diabetes and cancer. Yeah, that's right. It's really important to understand what direction the population weight is because this has an impact on um, the health services that are required. It impacts on the supports that are needed um, for people who are unable to work and and suffer from disability as a result of their weight. Um, So we need to be prepared. And as you say, what's been happening is our weight has been increasing across the population. So we know that this is a big problem and we are building hospitals that can, you know, manage people with, you know, who are above a healthy weight because that is um, the population. We have 12 and a half million adults who are in an unhealthy weight category and many of them are suffering from the diseases and disability that comes with that. So I mentioned at the beginning tobacco as a driver of preventable disease, uh, in inverted commas, and that's really come down from from a higher number to be about equal with obesity in terms of drivers of disease. That's happened because of interventions. Are interventions like what we've done with tobacco what we should be looking at for obesity? Yes, and up until now, um, the actions that the Australian government have taken that were outlined, many of them in the preventative health strategy um, obesity chapter, uh, haven't been implemented. And many of those would curtail the commercial interests of the ultra-processed food industry in particular. So there's a lot of um, pushback um, from these industries. So that would be their recommendations, such as protecting children from the marketing of unhealthy food. We uh, very successfully removed tobacco sponsorship, tobacco advertising on television. Um, there's no, virtually no tobacco advertising allowed in Australia. 
Um, we also brought in regulations around plain packaging of tobacco, um, smoke-free environments, and really increased the price of tobacco, um, plus provided services, referral pathways and services like the quit line, as well as pharmaceuticals to support people who, who wanted to quit smoking. So a really integrated approach and not just relying on public education and and people to do better, but really pressing those levers that shape how people behave to support them to be healthier. And the similar sort of things that we could do to support people to have healthy diets is taking sugary drinks out of hospitals and healthcare services, ensuring that schools are promoting healthy food, not doing the chocolate fundraiser, um, ensuring canteens are full of healthy, nutritious food for children, really changing social norms so that ultra-processed sugary drinks and processed foods aren't easy to get um, as they are now and really pushing healthy, fresh vegetables, fruits and other options to support people. I know that there's obviously a clear link between what people eat and the weight that they're at, but it's not, it's not the only thing that drives that. If we're talking about obesity as the sort of end result, is focusing just on a processed food and sugary drinks the answer? I think we need to look at the whole system. I mean, at the moment, this is sort of a, a really a tipping point in our society where we're seeing the cost of fresh food, food really um, jump to a huge extent that we've never, you know, we haven't seen in, in recent times. And that's a really serious issue. How do we reorientate the food system so that you know, the healthy foods, fruits and vegetables are cheap for people. Um, and these ultra processed foods aren't cheap. So, you know, what they've done in other countries is um, increase the price of, of sugary drinks by uh, putting a levy on manufacturers to reformulate. That has resulted in reformulation. Um, the price of the high sugar drinks goes up and people stop drinking those drinks. And then the funds are put towards health promotion efforts. Um, and that's had a lot of success in, you know, 53 countries around the world have done that now. Um, so, you know, you could look at those sorts of pricing levers um, and then support, you know, those on low income to purchase um, foods, healthy foods at a cheaper price. So there's a couple of recommendations that your group has put forward, but like you say, one of them is a sugar tax on drinks. That's something that's been in the national conversation on and off for a few years now. And there have been talks about industry sort of having voluntary codes. Is that a halfway point or does it need to be regulated? Um, I think you need to create a level playing field and regulate that um, and ensure that it happens in a timely way. In the UK, they implemented it within a year. And over that period, drinks manufacturers reformulated their drinks. And people just announcing that policy, people stopped drinking sugary drinks because they weren't aware of how much sugar was in those drinks, that it was harmful to their health, harmful to their dental health. So it really sent a quite a strong message um, across the British society. And people responded before there was even um, a, a disincentive through price. So it shows how powerful that sort of policy um, implementation and even announcement can be. We talk about obesity as a bit of a proxy for other health markers, and this is, this is something that happens at a global level. What, what's the data telling us about that and also what works when it comes to reducing people's weight at a population level? Is there anywhere that's actually doing it well? Yes. Well, yes, there are. But um, 
Obesity is a, a proxy and makes you more vulnerable to type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, 13 types of cancer, including common cancers like breast and bowel cancer. But it also puts a huge strain on your um, body. Um, and there are it's associated with um, Alzheimer's disease, um, mental health issues. Um, that that's something that people aren't necessarily um, aware of. So it does have huge impacts and our population is um, go- getting into these unhealth- unhealthy weight categories at younger ages. So people are at higher risk and they may develop these diseases and live with them for a long, a long time, which has a big impact on the um, on our economy because people um, are not able to work um, and be productive over their lifetime if they're suffering from um, these chronic long-term conditions. Um, Australia's not alone. We have one of the lowest smoking prevalences in the world, but um, we have one of the highest um, levels of overweight and obesity in, in the developed world. Um, as well. So we're not alone. And the countries that have um, really looked at introducing comprehensive approaches similar to what Australia has done in tobacco control are Latin America. They have a huge problem with type 2 diabetes and um, ultra-processed foods and drinks are very cheap um, and available. So they've done things like put a health levy on the manufacturers of sugary drinks for them to... um, reformulate. They've protected children from the marketing of unhealthy food, so stopped um, food advertising, junk food advertising to children on television. They've got rid of the cartoon characters on packaging, um, which were aimed at children, so high sugar cereals, that kind of thing, and um, put um, interpretive labelling, colour-coded labelling on the front of food packaging or, or warning labels on the front of food packaging, warning people if the product's high in fat, salt, sugar, or just overall um, energy. And having a package of measures like we did with tobacco control um, really is, um, we need a comprehensive approach. And we do have that roadmap. We have the National Obesity Strategy and we have the National Preventative Health Strategy, um, which again mirror many of those recommendations um, made to bring Australia um, up to the healthiest country uh, by 2020. Mm. Jane, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Jane Martin is the Executive Manager of the Obesity Policy Coalition. You're listening to The Health Report on RN with me, Tegan Taylor. We've all watched those medical shows where the patient turns up with vague symptoms and a team of doctors frantically tries to figure out the source of the problem before it's too late. Don't tell me you haven't watched shows like this. You're a Health Report listener. I know what you like. But what's it like to be that patient? Well, one person who knows very well is Caitlin Alsop. Back in 2018, when she was 23, she was dubbed Mystery Girl by the medical team trying to save her life. For her, it started with a weird red rash on her chest. So I'd actually had this random red rash ongoing for a couple of months. I'd been to a few different doctors and, you know, we'd just been trying to figure out what it was. You know, like a lot of young people do, I just kept working and ignored it. (laughs) And it wasn't until I was just got this really big, like, earache. And, you know, when you just feel really unwell and you want to keep pushing on, but I was feeling really hot and quite feverish. Went to the doctor to get my medical certificate for work, of course. Mm -hmm. The doctor thought that it, it was just the flu. A couple more days went by and Caitlin started to have a feeling like she'd bitten her tongue. She was feeling off colour, so she took a nap one evening. She woke up 
dribbling to find her tongue swollen on one side to the point where she couldn't speak. She texted her aunt, who took her to the local emergency department. And they say to her, 45 minutes and she'll be out. And that's what they think it is, anaphylaxis. So they give me two shots of adrenaline and a steroid, and it has the complete opposite effect. So my blood pressure completely drops. My breathing worsens. I get this mottled blue and red rash all over me, and I just keep passing out, feeling really unwell. This is where they actually say, we don't know what this is. So it was actually quite a brave decision to then escalate my care. And that was when they called mum as the emergency contact and they said, we're going to have to send her an emergency ambulance with a possible tracheostomy in the ambulance to the bigger hospital. They're telling you that there's a chance that they might have to cut your throat open in this ambulance. Yeah. Okay. So it's still a medical mystery and everything just kept getting worse and worse. I kept deteriorating. They fully comatose, paralysed, intubated me while they figured out what was going on as my body was just deteriorating. So they thought it was a tooth infection and it was just a hunch. And they did this CT scan and it turned out that inside my jaw, my wisdom tooth was impacted and infected. I had no pains, no symptoms, but this wisdom tooth had turned into an infection that had nearly killed me. This infection had triggered Caitlin's body to go into severe sepsis an inflammatory overreaction that can cause damage to tissues and organs. Caitlin spent nine days in a coma as the medical team worked to fight the infection. Then it was really scary, but the doctors were amazing. The pressure from the infection started to crush my jugular vein. So my tongue was black. They were talking about amputating it and my jugular vein started to get crushed as well. After the intervention from the doctors, that was where I really did start to turn a corner how many people were involved? Have you ever done the maths on how many people were involved in your care from start to finish? <laughs> well, I always rely on what I've been told, but I was told that when I got there, about 20 people waiting for me in recess as medical mystery. Um, mystery girl, I was called. Yeah. And then there was about 100 trying to figure out what on earth was going on. Do you feel yes. like there might have been opportunities earlier in your care that someone could have identified it as sepsis that might have made a difference for you? I'm often asked this and, you know, I'm really grateful that someone did escalate my care. But if they had recognised that it was sepsis at that very first hospital, it probably would have been a very different outcome because it would have been so much faster to start the treatment. I may not have ended up, you know, comatose, paralysed. Mm. So you've come to, they've explained to you all this stuff that's happened, obviously terrifying. And then what's the sort of return to your normal life been? So I'm really lucky compared to a lot of other people who have had sepsis. You know, I don't have any amputations or anything like that. There were talks of amputating my tongue, but I did wake up with all of these scars and, you know, there was a lot of like brain fog. Since then, the recovery was a little bit slow in that you literally wake up from a coma and you have no idea what's going on. You're trying to sort of piece everything together. But I was able to recover. I do have some ongoing things where I just constantly get a lot sicker than most people, just being really grateful to be alive and be here. So sepsis, it's a condition that claims thousands of Australian lives each year, but especially in the early stages, its symptoms are super vague. Now the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare has created a national clinical care standard for sepsis. I spoke to the Commission's clinical director, Dr Carolyn Hullick, earlier. 
Sepsis is a life-threatening condition and it's a medical emergency that many of us don't know too much about. And in Australia, more than 8,500 people die each year with sepsis, which is a pretty phenomenal number and more than people who die from road trauma or stroke that we know quite a lot about. Sepsis is actually the body's response to an infection, so it can happen after any infection. But what happens is that your body starts to have dysfunction of organs related to the infection, which can be life-threatening. And often people with sepsis can actually have ongoing long-term problems or morbidity related to sepsis as well. For people who aren't familiar with sepsis, can you talk us through what's happening in the body? So it can happen after any infection. And what happens is your immune system starts to react to that infection. And then your immune system can actually have impacts on your heart and lungs and brain. And I think sometimes when we think about COVID and we talk about long COVID, in some ways they're talking about similar things related to um, sepsis. You mentioned the scale of the problem and why it's needed. What was the situation before this new national standard? I think the good thing about this new national standard, which is actually pretty remarkable, is that we've got all the states and territories and the Australian government to agree on how we should manage sepsis. So previously, different conditions, different states and territories had different standards. So by bringing everyone together, it means we can all be on the same page in relation to sepsis care. What are some of the things that have changed? Like what are some of the steps that have been implemented? Yeah, we're kind of divided it into three parts. So the first three statements are about what happens when you think someone may have sepsis. How do we recognise it? How do we diagnose it? How do we treat it? And then the next statements are around how do we look after people through hospital, multidisciplinary care, communicating with families. And then the last one is around going home and what should happen after hospital. Because one of the things the people who have survived sepsis have told us about is that when they go back out into the community, even if they've been critically unwell and in intensive care, that their GPs and the rest of their families and care providers don't necessarily know what to do or how to manage them with their sepsis. One of the consumers told us that she didn't have any obvious, you know, limb amputations or anything. She'd been in intensive care. And when she went home, she kind of expected she'd be able to go straight back to work. But she was having trouble thinking and driving and just doing her average daily tasks. And it just took her much longer than she expected to recover from sepsis. And she wished she'd known that before she actually left hospital. Right. So some of this is geared towards consumers. The majority of it's geared towards the medical system. But for consumers... It's maybe more common than people realise, but it is rare. What sort of level of awareness do we need in the community? Like with stroke, we have FAST fast as this way of diagnosing that or recognising that someone that you're with might be having a stroke. Do we need something like that for sepsis? So the first statement around in the sepsis clinical care standard is just could it be sepsis? I think that's a really good question for both clinicians and for consumers to think about. And if they present to hospital and say to the triage nurse, could it be sepsis, it helps to trigger different thinking about what the problem is. As you could imagine in children particularly, one of the commonest reasons why children come to the emergency department is fever and an infection. And trying to pick out the child who has sepsis amongst all the other children who have maybe viral illnesses can be really difficult. So we just want people to think about, could this be sepsis? So I think that's the most important thing. And then hopefully the systems are in place to then trigger the rest of the system to do the right things. So in addition to being involved in this work, you're also an emergency physician yourself. What sort of frustrations do you find in this space in your clinical work? I don't think it's frustrating. I think um, the emergency department's actually designed for identification of critically ill people. It's probably frustrating for patients who have maybe lower acuity problems who maybe wait for a long time. But I think when people arrive critically unwell, 
is actually very well geared to look after people like this. I think the challenging part is actually the ones who are maybe a bit borderline. So if you arrive in the ED and you've got a fast pulse and a low blood pressure, and you get a high triage category, you go to the resuscitation bay, all the systems kick in and we do very well. But it's the ones in between where we're thinking, oh, could it be sepsis? I'm not sure. Is, is it another diagnosis? To me, that's a difficult and challenging group where we can sometimes miss things. And I think by having systems in place around how we're going to manage sepsis, then that helps to capture some of that group that's not so straightforward. What sort of a difference does it make if you can capture someone and diagnose them early compared to when they're in that more critical state? Well, I suppose the catchphrase is every minute counts, but basically the longer it takes for us to diagnose sepsis and the longer it takes for patients particularly to get antibiotics, the worse outcomes that they can have. And that's why it's such a time-critical emergency. If people take one thing away from these guidelines, what do you hope it is? I think to take sepsis seriously and to think about could it be sepsis? And I think the other part is around making sure that we listen to patients and families and take their concerns seriously and empower them to speak up if they're concerned about could it be sepsis? Dr Carolyn Hullick is an emergency physician and clinical director of the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. Now, we've talked before on this show about the evidence, or lack thereof, in favour of vitamin supplements, including vitamin D. Many people are told to take a vitamin D supplement, especially in winter when there's less sunshine, but it's possible to have too much of a good thing. Tonight, we've got my colleague, science reporter Gemma Conroy, talking about a case of something I'd never heard of before, vitamin D toxicity. Hi, Gemma. Tell us about this guy. Hi, thanks for having me, Teagues. Um, Yeah, so there was this man in the UK recently who came to hospital vomiting, diarrhoea. You know, his, his kidneys were almost shutting down and blood tests revealed that he actually had, his vitamin D levels were seven times over the limit. And it's because he was taking a cocktail of 20 different supplements, including a whopping 150,000 international units of vitamin D. And he'd been experiencing this for three months. Um, As soon as he started taking these really high doses of these supplements, um, he he pretty much started experiencing symptoms one month in. He stopped uh, taking them, but he was continuing to experience these nasty symptoms. Um, And, yeah, it just goes to show you can definitely have too much of a good thing. Right. So why why was he taking so much? Well, when I spoke to Dr. Alamanol Condi, he said that a main motivation for this man, he was feeling really low in energy and he'd sought out the advice of a nutritionist who advised him to take some high doses of different vitamins and one of them was vitamin D. So I think he sort of thought that perhaps the vitamin D could sort of pick him up a little bit. He had had a history of some pretty severe health problems, um, although he wasn't sort of suffering from them at that sort of time. But yeah, he was really just looking to sort of, you know, be a bit more active, have a bit of extra pep in his step. And he thought this was the way to go following the advice of a nutritionist. Uh, Clearly not. So he, quite unwell, 
What's the treatment for vitamin D toxicity? So he spent eight days in hospital and they, they flushed his system out with intravenous fluids and they put him on a magic medication to reduce his calcium levels because actually that, that's what happens with vitamin D toxicity is it makes your calcium levels in your blood um, go right up, which leads to all these symptoms. Um, it can even include things like tinnitus, uh, abdominal pain, um, you know, just a huge range of symptoms, fatigue. He'd lost like almost 13 kilos in that short space of time. And, you know, he managed to sort of be discharged from hospital. But, you know, when he came back to, to check in two months later, his calcium levels had returned to normal, but his vitamin D levels were still sky high. And that's because vitamin D, it, it takes a long time to sort of flush out of your system. It's because it's a fat-soluble vitamin, it's stored in your, your fat tissue, it, it's actually got a very slow turnover. So it took a long time to undo the damage. Right. So can we talk then, <laughs> this feels like a cautionary tale, <laughs> how much vitamin D is the right amount for a usual human? So generally in Australia, the government advises you to take no more than 200 or 400 to 600 international units each day. That's 5 to 15 micrograms. Um, if you're severely deficient or you've got health problems such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease, you might, be, you might get a higher dose than that. I think the safe upper limit is something like 4,000 international units, but again, you wouldn't take that much unless you had a very specific reason for doing so or your doctor advised you to. And the toxic level is some, if you're taking 40,000 to 100,000 international units, that's when you've got a high chance of coming down with vitamin D toxicity. And this man was taking even more than that. So most Australians are getting enough vitamin D just from getting out in the sunshine. There's a little bit in some certain foods. Is there any insights on the psychology of why people maybe take extra high doses of things like supplements? Yeah, for sure. So I think there's still like a, a perception that natural automatically means safe. And, you know, with these sort of natural substances, you know, you know, we're sort of getting these things every day. It's easy to sort of fall into that trap of thinking, oh, more is better. Um, and a big problem is, is that vitamins and supplements aren't regulated like, you know, over-the-counter medications or prescription medications. So, it, yeah, people just easily fall into that trap of thinking that, you know, they can boost their well-being or improve their immune system just by sort of taking sort of high doses of vitamins. But as this case shows, it, it's quite easy to overdo it. And another thing is, is that manufacturers, because they aren't regulated, manufacturers aren't obligated to sort of warn people about the possible risks of, of some of these vitamins and supplements and how they interact with medications, the dangers of taking too much. And that's something that Dr Geraldine Moses, she's a pharmacist at the University of Queensland, that's something that she said has to change. That's what we'd be calling for, if anything, would be more information about potential risks so that consumers can make a rational choice. Then also um, evidence-based advice on dose because, again, most consumers just don't think there is a special dose. So they'll just pluck a dose out of the air. So that's Dr Geraldine Moses, who's a pharmacist at the University of Queensland, talking about people just pretty much self-dosing. So vitamin supplements, not benign, definitely have um, effects, definitely can be overdosed on. So if people are thinking that they might want to supplement, what, what should people be doing beforehand? 
definitely talk to your GP or other health professional before you try out a new supplement, particularly if you've already got some health issues and you're on prescription medications. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this man sought out the advice of a nutritionist. And while there are a lot of really great nutritionists out there, a big problem is the fact that, you know, uh, nutri- the profession itself, it's you know, it's not regulated either. Pretty much anyone can call themselves a nutritionist these days. So it's best just to talk to your GP or another health professional before taking any new vitamin or supplement. So that's the case here and also in the UK. Uh, Gemma, has it made you change your mind about any supplements that you've been taking? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I take vitamin... I take vitamin D myself and I must admit I rushed to sort of have a look at like what level it was on the bottle and it's a thousand international units so I'm doing okay and yeah I mean obviously in winter months we're getting less sun it's not a bad idea um, to dose off on vitamin D but um, definitely not that much. Yeah pull back on that. Gemma thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Gemma Conroy is a science reporter in the ABC Science Unit with me Tegan Taylor and next week we'll be back again with Dr. Norman Swan. We'll see you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.